Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Anna. This episode today is part of our series about getting older right now. And before we get into it, I want to let you know that we are doing a live national radio call-in about aging on Wednesday, February 3rd from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be hosting along with Joanne Allen, whom you heard hosting our episode, Just Ask Us, Your Stories About Life After 60. We had to postpone this follow-up special because of all the breaking news out of Washington, and we are excited to finally talk together live about what those of you over 60 are noticing about aging right now. Again, that's coming up Wednesday, February 3rd on public radio stations across the country. Or you can listen on the Death, Sex, and Money Facebook or Twitter pages where we'll be streaming the whole thing. You can also text the word aging to the number 70101. And we'll send you a reminder of when we're about to go live. I really believe that we are constantly affecting everything around us and it responds to us so if we can hold or primarily hold a positive feeling about the world about ourselves and hold hope we can change the world this is death sex and money the show from wnyc about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more i'm anna sale Welcome the spring, the summer rain Softly turn to sing again Welcome the bud, the summer blooming flower This is Beverly Glenn Copeland, whose music has been an essential salve for me through these last several months. Glenn is a Canadian musician and singer-songwriter who's been quietly putting out albums since the 1970s. This song, Ever New, was released by Glenn in 1986 on an album called Keyboard Fantasies. The album went largely unnoticed until 2015, when a Japanese record collector emailed to ask Glenn if he had any more copies. I wouldn't go so much as to say it was exciting. I would say... I was thinking, oh, that's, that's great, and, and they must have some around here somewhere, and I didn't even remember where they were. My wife said, yeah, this is where they are, and she went and pulled them all out. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'd still be looking for them, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and he sold those within a week and a half. And then what happened was, all of a sudden, within probably a month of him selling those records... I started getting calls from record companies. And then at that point, I, that was when my jaw hit the floor. Suddenly, in his 70s, Glenn's career took off. And 2020 was supposed to be the year when all this new attention and opportunity was going to come together. A new documentary about Glenn was headed for film festivals, a new collection of his music was being released, and an international tour was planned. And then, of course, the tour was called off. It was interesting because I really didn't have much time to think about the loss of the touring. I was so busy thinking about the loss of a home. Last year, Glenn and his wife were also in the midst of moving. They'd already sold their old house. And when the projected earnings from the tour went away, they could no longer afford the place they'd planned to buy. So we ended up being homeless. That's how I first learned about Glenn's music. 
Producer Afi Yellowduke told me about a GoFundMe his daughter had started that raised about $75,000 for Glenn and his wife. Word had spread quickly among his fans and people in the queer community who wanted to help out Glenn, a trans elder. Almost 3,000 people from all over the world donated $25, $20, $30, whatever they could afford. And they were people who we knew were also going through difficult times as well because everybody was going through uncertain times. Glenn and his wife were also given a place to stay. When we talked, Glenn was sitting next to his electric piano in a guest house overlooking the Atlantic coast in New Brunswick. We were offered this place in June when we no longer had a home. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Who offered it to you? Um, two, two people married to each other, both, both international lawyers, a man and a woman who had made a whole lot of money, uh, found out about our situation and offered it to us for nothing until we could find out, you know, until, until spring, at t- which point they considered that we would have found another home. Wow. So these are people mm-hmm. you did not know previously? Not, not at all. And they said, we have this home on the coast, come stay here. What was that like, Glenn, when, when people you didn't know said... Come stay. I mean, it was uh, it was a, a, a point of being stunned, actually, because my wife and I had been um, under such stress to have, you know, to essentially not know where we were going to live for, oh, five months. They called it paying it forward. Did that feel comfortable to accept for you? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> totally. You know, if you, can't, if you can't accept a gift when a gift is being given by the universe, you got problems. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Before he wrote and performed his own music, Glenn studied classical singing and performance. He grew up playing piano in a Quaker family in Philadelphia that had a Steinway in the living room. He left to go to school in Montreal, where he was one of the first black students to study music at McGill University. But after McGill, he realized he wanted to take his career in another direction. I want to to start to write music that incorporates the music from all other, all over the world and many other cultures. That's what hit me. What I did was I took the guitar and, and I didn't know anything about anybody else doing this either. And I started retuning the strings and every piece that would come to me would have a different tuning on the strings Mm. and I'd have to retune the thing. And I played it with a pick as though it was a drum. Did it feel, do you remember a feeling of fear as you were stepping away from all of those familiar <laughs> slots? Not at even, not even one ounce of it. Really? I, just, I don't, I don't know. No, I, I just went, oh, this is what I'm going to do and next. And I did it. Can you tell me about like, what is it about you that you think makes, makes it feel like not a big deal to say like, 
all these, there are all these like ways that people have done this before, but I'm just going to try something really different and not feel too worried about it. I don't think I'm too sensitive. <laughs> uh. I really didn't think about I'm doing this because I'm, I'm, I want to, I want to create a career. Hmm. It, it was a drive. How were you supporting yourself with money at that point? Oh, listen, I had no money. The first, um, <laughs> oh, money. Listen, I lived, when I started doing that, I had just finished breaking my foot off of my bone, oh. literally. Yeah, I was in a full cast on one leg, not not walking. The only thing I could afford was one little room that was on a second floor. I had to go up on my cast. I ate peanut butter. That's how I lived. Peanut butter and sardines. Hmm. And it was fine. I felt totally free. I wasn't f- afraid of it. It was just like, this is what it is. I'm, I'm free to like explore this. I'm going to explore this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look on it now with great am- amazement. <laughs> you, you, because youth is like, you know, the, the great thing about youth is that it isn't afraid of anything. And the, the difficulty about youth is it has no idea what it should be afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> How did you begin your work in children's television? Uh, I had a very dear friend, and she had a, a very good friend. And this good friend, she was a writer for this show. She got in touch with me um, and asked me if I would be willing to be on this program called the Mr. Dress-Up Show. She said, we'd love to have you on this show, and we're writing you in as a character, but we also would like it if you would write music for this show for this particular episode. So I did. And I had just the most wonderful time. I was just like, oh, goody two shoes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I had to get dressed up in all these silly costumes, right? And I had to talk to these puppets who were, you know, were just amazing. And, um, uh, and, and then I, and I wrote music for the show. Well, afterwards, they loved it so much that all the other writers started writing me in. And after a while, I became a character who was considered to be one of the neighborhood folks mm. in the show. And, um, and I wrote all, you know, I probably wrote a hundred songs mm. for them. And it, 20 years passed by. Wow. That's a large portion of your adult life. Yes, it was. What was like the thing you wanted to convey? to a child who's watching. I wanted to convey to children that what they were looking at was made, made them feel safe, made them feel loved, made them feel seen, um, not talking down to them, mm-hmm. but engaging them in their own imagination. Mm-hmm. Did you feel seen and heard and safe when you were growing up? Uh, yes and no. Depends on uh, what aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I felt very safe as a child in terms of that um, my home was a safe place. My parents were, you know, very safe from that perspective. Um, now, the ways in which I did not feel safe, uh-huh. 
did not happen until I revealed to my parents that I was a boy in a girl's body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coming up, Glenn talks about how he began to understand his gender identity and how his parents reacted to it. My parents were black, for God's sakes, and they knew what it was like to have to be able to be safe in a, in a society mm-hmm. in which you were basically second-class citizens. Last week, we asked you to tell us what it's like to be dating during COVID. My name is Rachel. I'm 26. I'm single and looking sometimes. Rachel has been trying to meet people during the pandemic, which has been very strange. She felt that acutely when she hit it off with a guy she'd met on a dating app recently. We'd had a video date. We'd had a walking date. And then... um, you know, going to his apartment for the first time and this feeling like I didn't even know this person and I wasn't asking for a one-night stand, but suddenly we're in this really intimate situation because restaurants weren't open, movie theaters, bars, nothing's open. So the only place you can go is into someone's private home. Keep sending in your experiences of dating during COVID or of wanting to date but not knowing how. Send in your thoughts if you're single and looking, especially if you're not straight or not a woman. And separately, Rachel's mention of one-night stands got us reminiscing about when you could go home with someone without worrying about getting coronavirus. And as we are coming up on Valentine's Day, we thought it would be fun to get nostalgic together. So we want to hear your best one-night stand stories. This time, we'd really like you to send in voice memos. Record it and email it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. No matter how long ago, tell us about that magical moment of connection that stands out. I, for one, a married mom with two little kids, would really like to hear them. On the next episode, we continue our series about being over 60 right now. I talk with 74-year-old writer Norma Elia Cantu. She grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border, the oldest of 11 siblings, and spent a lot of her young adulthood making trade-offs, like when she had to leave her college and work at the electric company to support her family. I would cry every night uh, because that's not what I wanted to be doing. I didn't want to be working in an office typing up contracts for businesses or to let people have their lights. (laughs) No matter how I justified it as it being an essential job that, you know, people need their electricity, (laughs) it didn't mitigate the feeling of, I don't belong here. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. From the time he was a child, Beverly Glenn Copeland knew he was different from the people he saw around him. But the words he used to describe his gender identity and sexuality changed over the years. In the 1960s, when Glenn was a student at McGill, he identified as a lesbian, and his parents were alarmed when they found out he was dating women. Well, they were frantic, Mm. absolutely frantic, because, first of all, the the um, literature coming from the psychiatric um, community at that time called it all a disease. Mm-hmm. 
they were trying to protect me from every perspective. But in the protecting of me, of course, it turned into into being, you know, quite repressive. Did you feel their anxiety and their worry as protection? Yes. yes. Or, or did it feel? Your, oh, you mean around this particular? In, like, how issue? did you experience it? You are. You say that you can understand their urge to protect. What did that feel yes, like? No, I. Yeah, I I understood it as that they were um, deeply worried about me um, and that it wasn't something that I would be able to talk with them about. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, it was like um, not safe. This is a part of me they can't can't handle. Yeah, yeah, but... Yeah, they can't handle. So, so, so I was, you know, but later it turned into a bit of a witch hunt, unfortunately. And they, they, they did some things that were actually quite dangerous to my, to my freedom and my health. I was in danger of being put in a hospital and electroshocked. Hmm. How did you stop that from happening? Uh, one time they literally forced me into an automobile, um, with, uh, over, overpowered me and they took me to this doctor's, this, this ordinary doctor. He wasn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anything. And, um, you know, I was forced marched into this guy's office and, uh, he starts picking up the phone to call the hospital to have me committed. And I, I literally ran out the door and outpaced my parents. You ran away from and them. And managed to... Uh-huh. Yeah, I ran away from them. Do you remember where you went when you stopped running? Where did you end up? I ran into a telephone booth and, and put my finger down the list of psychiatrists. And my finger stopped at one. And it was, it was within two blocks of where I was. I raced to this guy's office with my parents on my heels. They came in shortly after, after me, but I said I need to speak to the psychiatrist by myself. I told them what was happening. He freaked out, called my parents into the office and said, if you do not cease and desist, I will take this person into protective custody. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Of all the psychiatrists in the world, I found one who understood. How did you come back to a relationship with your mother that felt safe after having to outrun her? It was very, it was, it was, it was extremely interesting. So at one point, my mom, from my my perspective, you know, became so upset about me and she became, you know, so it became so difficult that I felt that every time I spoke with her, that she was actually becoming abusive. I understand what was happening. I do understand. But at that time, I just, I just said to her, you know, I don't think I'll ever speak to you again in my life. And I hung up the phone. I really didn't give my mom a second thought, and that's the honest truth of it. And then one day, a year later, I suddenly was reaching. I suddenly went, oh, I think I'll call my mom. And I reached for the phone. Literally, the phone rang. It was my mother on the other end. And her words were, 
oh, my darling, please forgive me. Hmm. And that was the end of that problem. Wow. What did it feel like to hear those words from her? Oh, it was like, oh, oh, of course I forgive you. <laughs> Let's just get back to being, you know, mother and child. <laughs> you know, I love you. I've always loved you. Let's just get back on that, right? And and it was and we were back we were back on it. And she was from that point on a champion for me, constantly telling me to live my life, not and and defending me in any way. I'm curious, having having had that experience. And mm-hmm. feeling the dangers that you could face because of your lack mm-hmm. of uh, emotional protection and also legal protection. Um, mm-hmm. Did you did you feel at risk as you were a professional person, as you were working in children's television, about who you were? Did you have to hide? No, it didn't change my life. I mean, I just went off and continued living my life, right? Um, but I was aware, well aware of the fact that if it became known um, in in the in the general public that I was transgendered, that it would be a difficulty for the parents who you know who who had their children watching the the Mr. Dressup show. So I waited. Once I understood that I was transgendered, which was in 1990, whatever to say, 1996, 1995, 1995, um, I, um, you know, I, I let all my, my close friends know, but I did not discuss it um, in public mm-hmm. until 2003. And I won't ask what was gained, babe. Between your love and your tears Since coming out publicly in the early 2000s and having his music rediscovered in 2015, Glenn has reached a whole new, younger generation of fans. His backing band is also made up of young musicians, who are mostly in their mid-20s. My great dream is that I can take all seven of them with me wherever I go, for which I will need thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it it is my prayer. How has your life been changed by spending all this time with your band? Um, They became like teachers. Oh, teachers. Um, Yeah, teachers. because that's what uh, young people are teachers for older people and older people are teachers for younger people. They were totally hip to absolutely everything that was going on in the world musically from one pole to the other in every single country. And they would sit around discussing it all and blah, blah, blah. It was like they were speaking Greek. And, you know, and I would, <laughs> and I would, I would say to them, like, well, well, could you t- tell me a little bit more about this? And they'd go, oh, not only tell you, and then they'd put on music, yeah. right? And I go, oh my God, listen to that. So they were constantly educating me musically. And then, of course, the way in which they, they just the way they were together was, was a, a, you know, they were so at ease with each other. And, and, you know, I mean, like, 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 check this out. Like they were so at ease that they could sleep all in the same beds together, males and females, without it being about sex. Mm. Just about protection and the need for, you know, for company. Mm -hmm. Right. 
okay, check that out. That's a whole <laughs> that level felt, of reality. That felt right? cool. That felt like new, like, oh, this, this is a way of being. Yes. And I mean, I understood that, but to actually see them be able to be like that, mm. it was like, Okay, this, this this is a step in human growth. Good grief! Look at this. Oh, interesting! Like right? seeing them move through the world with fewer hangups than you felt like the yep. world had when you yes, were young. Yes, 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 uh-huh. exactly, uh-huh. exactly. I was so I was just I I, I cannot tell you how refreshing it was. Mm. How absolutely because it 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 was they were manifesting what I knew was possible. I had never seen it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do wonder when you were first, when you were first touring together with your band, did you have moments where you um, kind of noticed just your age difference in ways that made you feel self-conscious, like just needing to move a little slower oh, than them well, or uh, anything oh, like no, that? Oh, no, it didn't make me feel self-conscious. I played it up for all it was worth. <laughs> You know how it's done. You know, I hear you. Yeah, no, seriously, because, you know, because I have a I have a knee that you know really should be replaced. Sometimes it'll go out and I'll be on crutches. So like I have to I have to travel with crutches in case it goes out and gets stuck in a bent position, uh, right? Uh-huh. So and and I've been going down the steps backwards for many years to to lessen the stress on on knees that are old. And of course, you know, I'm not going to be carrying anything going down the stairs backwards. So, you know, so they would lug all the stuff and, you know, they treated me so, they treated me as though I was an elder, like their grandparents. Mm. And, and, and they were totally caring, care, caretaking in that kind of way. And I loved it. Deep river, my home is Deep river, Lord. I want to cross over into campground. When you think about what 2021 might look like for you, um, in a time when Hopefully, maybe at some point it will become safe for us to gather again. Um, yes. What do you picture? I think that I will do at least one, and I don't expect to do many others, but I know that I have to go and thank my audiences around the world. And I, I actually want to do that. And you know I'm going to have to take my crutches and then do, 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 and you know, we will figure out how we can do it in such a way that I, and that I'm not worn out. Um, because I, I need to go and say thank you. I think that we all have a purpose. Um, and, and it's a purpose that, you know, that is, you know, uniquely ours through whatever our unique gifts are or our, our skills or whatever. Cause every person, has every person is unique and every person is a, a part of of the universal um, design the universe doesn't design anything it doesn't want 
and Lord knows I didn't design me. So um, on a given day, it may look hopeless or you may get depressed or you may go through really feeling just, oh my God, I can't make it. It's like if we can come back to a positive feeling about things, we can change the world. I came here to encourage people about that. Let it go, let it go That's Beverly Glenn Copeland. All the music in this episode came from his latest album, a compilation of music from his career called Transmissions, the music of Beverly Glenn Copeland, which is out now. There's a Spotify link to it in our show notes. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production from WNYC Studios in New York. Afi Duke produced this episode. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Lauren McCabe in Malvern, New York, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. You can join Lauren and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Thank you.